Grace and peace, everyone. It's good to be here with you all tonight. I have a, a pretty good friend who lives just a few miles from here. I've known him for almost 30 years. He's a person who I admire spiritually. And we were chatting once a few years ago, and he he uh, he loves to pray. It's one thing I, I respect about him is his prayer life. And he was... He was uh, telling me uh, one Sunday that there was an evening where he was he was praying and it was pretty late in the night and in the middle of his prayer time he felt this this urge this sense that he needed to go to a particular park uh, not too far from here and so he thought this was this was unusual and this is not something that he would routinely do but he stopped in the middle of his his prayer time and went out to this this park and walked around. It was it was late at night, so there was actually only one person there at the park, and it was a young man, also Indian, who was sitting sitting up uh, kind of up, up on a rock that existed in this park, and and so just the two of them there. And so my friend uh, reaches out and says hi, uh, introduces himself, and lo and behold, this this man, this young man who was was sitting there, was about to kill himself, and he, uh, as soon as he figures this out, of course, he strikes up a conversation. This young man sitting up on the rock had a Hindu background, and this proved to be a major uh, event in this young man's life. He uh, they ended up making friends and decided not to commit suicide, and the whole trajectory of his life turns at this point from this one interaction. So I don't know about you, when I hear stories like that, I'm like, that's pretty awesome. That's a, that's a great story. And I want to have those kinds of experiences in my life. I don't want to live a boring, humdrum Christian life in the flesh. And so I'm going to be talking today about hearing God's voice. And I've, I've entitled the message, Five Steps to Hearing God's Voice. And I want us to turn to 1 Samuel 3 as our main passage that we're going to look at here. For Samuel 3, we're going to read the whole chapter, so read with me here. For Samuel 3, starting in verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, And when his eyes had begun begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again. Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak, for your servant hears. Okay, so I'm actually going to jump down to to verse 15. So Sam, there's a vision of destruction against Eli's house. I'm not going to read that part. Verse 15 reads, So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to be wise. We want to be able to hear your voice in, in an age when hearing your word is, is rare. Hearing your word is precious. Father, I, I pray that in this difficult subject that has been abused uh, at many extremes, that you would help us first and foremost to go to your word and to hear what you have spoken through the scriptures. I pray we would not fear to follow your word wherever it may it may go. And I just pray for a real openness here for us to be challenged in our stereotypes and thought patterns in order that we may more faithfully be in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, I want to talk this evening about five steps to hearing God's voice. And I hope that's something that at least intrigues you. Last citywide that I spoke, I said that I've been, I've been meditating on what I think our, our greatest need is or one of our greatest needs. And I've said uh, in the past, and I'll continue to maintain, that I think our greatest need is to, to build our prayer life individually and corporately. And I mentioned last time there are these four just dynamic, amazing, awesome truths that you should should memorize, you should have them committed and and store them deep in your soul there. I'll read them again from last time. These are uh, some principles from an individual named Jack Taylor who says, number one, your spiritual life is bounded by, by your prayer life. Number two, the church's effectiveness will not rise above its corporate prayer life. Number three, the corporate prayer life of a church will not rise above the personal prayer lives of its constituents. And then finally, no believer's prayer life will rise above his or her own personal, regular, daily time of worship. Okay, so those four principles are gold, absolutely uh, invaluable. I hope you you just cherish them and memorize them and internalize them. I'll read it one more time. Your spiritual life, number one, is bounded by your prayer life. Number two, the, the church's effectiveness will not rise above its corporate prayer life. Number three, the corporate prayer life of a church will not rise above the personal prayer life of its constituents. And finally, no believer's prayer life will rise above his or her own personal, regular, daily time of worship. Okay, so, so those are our four principles that if you are interested, I can, I can talk to you afterwards about where they come from. One of the main barriers, one of the main blocks to successfully praying is, if we're honest, is the feeling that sometimes we have that we're talking to a wall, that it's not doing anything, that we're, we're really not making the kind of progress that we make when we read a book or study the Bible or talk to somebody. And in our honest moments, I think we can, we can recognize this. It feels often, prayer can feel less like uh, communication as it is just us talking to ourselves. And because of all that, prayer, because it doesn't feel like it's accomplishing much, it can quickly become something that is very bound up with just duty. Like, I got to do it. I got to do it because the Bible tells me to do it. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything, but I just got to do it. And I think if we're honest, a lot of the prayer life that we have had over the years and decades has been more duty, more just, I don't really feel this is doing anything, but I'm going to do it anyway. And there's, there's a... There's a set of, of ways in which God has made the world that, that, that we have to appreciate the, the relationship between duty and delight. Duty and delight. So the way that I think about what most of our spiritual life should be is it should be the case that duty is kind of your safety net. It's, it's sort of like what, what you use when things aren't going well and you fall out of a, out of a, 
place where you should be and it catches you so you don't slam and hit the ground. But that your your baseline, your normal way of, of operating should be more out of delight. That that the vast majority of, of disciplines, whether it's praying, whether it's reading the Bible, whether it is uh, time in, 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 in fellowship, all of these things, time and obedience, a lot of people struggle with obedience in particular areas and they grit their teeth and ah, I got to do this. And okay, there's a time and a place for that. And like I said, duty is the safety net, right? Like we're, we're thankful to have a safety net if you're falling down from a, a rope. Uh, I, I picture somebody on a tightrope walking way up high and a, a person should be thankful that there's a, a safety net un, under them. But hopefully delight is your engine. You know, uh, let's think about talking to your spouse or showing up at the office. You, you can do those things out of duty. And again, there's a, a time and a place where, hey, you've had a bad day, you're tired, you're emotionally not in a great place. Uh, I'm thankful that we have duty as something that we can rely on. But if that is your your mainstay uh, form of operating, you're going to get burned out fast. And it's gonna, your Christian life is not going to be a very rich, full one. So in the same way, I, I am convinced that a lot of what inhibits the prayer life of most people is they don't really think it's doing much in their heart of hearts. It turns into this act of duty. They don't really get much out of it. And, and so it becomes this kind of flagellation, like, I got to do it, I got to do it, I got to do it. And, um, and often it doesn't happen because if it's done out of duty, it doesn't succeed so well. I once read years ago a, a really helpful analogy that helped me with this. Uh, a writer named Don, Donald Whitney uh, gave this analogy. He says, what if you could pick anybody in all of history, all of history, anybody from the beginning of time until today, and you could have a, a one-hour conversation with that person? There's no language barrier. You can talk to anybody you want in all of history. Who would you pick? Okay, so you think about who you'd pick, and then you imagine having this dialogue with, with this individual. And that'd be pretty awesome, right? Like, man, having a, a full hour with anybody from history, that'd be great. And then uh, Whitney poses this thought experiment. He says, what if the very next day you, uh, this person says, you get to talk to the same person again? And you're like, yes. He says, but there's a catch. The catch is that you have to use the same words that you used on the first day. You think like, what? What kind of cruel, sick trick is this. And so you, you sit down with this person and you have to have the same exact conversation you had the day before. Okay, maybe you could do that. Maybe you could stomach it because the person is just so interesting. But then you got to do it day three, day four, day five, day six. Like, I don't care who the person is. After a few days, this is going to get old really fast. And realistically, that's a lot of what our prayer lives are, is saying the same thing in the same way to the same person and it just turns into this very monotonous exercise right so a lot of a lot of people use use prayer lists and things like that and it can become really difficult so that that's a problem that that's a that's a problem what makes conversations so interesting and engaging with any one of you is there's a certain dynamic quality to a conversation where you're learning, you're growing, that person says something surprising, you say something surprising, what? And there's just there's some kind of a, 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 an unexpectedness in any kind of a dialogue that makes it interesting, right? That's what makes people people. That, that's what makes us able to, to do uh, conversations with, with the kind of hopefully uh, interest that we have. So if... If prayer for you, it has mostly been drudgery or duty, my thesis is that you're probably just doing it wrong. There's probably something very fundamentally broken in your prayer life that I want to fix. I want to fix it tonight, and I want this to hopefully be a turning point in your in your prayer life here. Uh, so as I said, duty is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a great thing from time to time as a safety net, but we should be normally driven by delight in our scripture reading, in our prayer life, in our obedience. 
And so I'm going to give you five ways in which I think the real answer to this is to learn how to hear God. Because once you learn how to hear God, all of a sudden prayer can become much more dynamic. It becomes much more alive in ways that it otherwise uh, would not be for you. Okay, so here we go. Five points. Number one, be expectant that God wants to speak to you. Be expectant that God wants to speak to you. Okay, so I'm going to quote to you from Jesus here. Jesus is interacting with the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8. And in verse 47, Jesus says, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Okay, very short. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Okay, so so a lot of people... They, they, they think God's word equals the Bible. The Bible equals God's word. There is some truth to that, but it's, it's a more nuanced relationship as we're going to see. And are, is Jesus really saying here, okay, you Jews don't have the Bible. That's the problem. Is that I have the Bible and the apostles, we have the Bible, but you don't have the Bible and that's the problem. Um, I think we all know that's not the case. They had the Bible. They studied the Bible. They were very zealous about the Bible. When he says here, he who is of God hears God's words, he's talking more than just simply hearing the Bible. Jesus is talking about hearing the Bible, communicating with God, hearing from God in ways that they have not yet done. There's a sense in which the, the Jewish leaders perceived the truth, or sorry, that they did not perceive the truth in the way that Jesus wanted them to. Jesus says in John 10:27. My sheep hear my voice. And it's almost like the definition of Jesus' followers is that they hear his voice. So th- there's a, a several statements in John that run in this direction that say basically the true followers of God are those who hear God and those who don't, don't hear God. Okay, so that's, that's a very interesting way to, to think about defining who are God's people, those who hear God. And again, it's not just those who read the Bible or listen to the Bible. It's those who hear God. What, what I mean and what, what in general the Bible means when it talks about hearing God, it's about not just, okay, do I understand the sentence of scripture here, but it's, it's do, I, do I hear God speak to my soul? Is there a sense in which there's a, there's a resonance, there's a, there's a conviction, there's an understanding, there's a fullness that comes to me from interacting with God. And, and in, the reality is, is that so often what, what can happen is when we are engaging with God, we can, we can maybe insert other ideas besides God's in there. Okay, so we won't turn to this passage. I, I think most of you know this. When the Israelites show up at Mount Sinai, they're all there waiting at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the mountain is obviously supernaturally infused here. There's like thunder and there's clouds. It's this very, very fearsome sight. And it's very interesting because the Israelites are are there and they're like, okay, God, we're here. Now we want to hear from you. They actually don't want to hear from God and they say, Moses, you go up on the mountain and you hear from God and you come back down and you tell us what God says. And I'm pretty sure it's because at this point, by the time they get to Mount Sinai, they have already experienced uh, a number of events uh, that have convinced them that, rightly or wrongly, that when God speaks, they, they should be very afraid and that God is a God of terror. There's something about the Israelites through all their, their desert experiences where time and time again, they, they just have come to believe that God is out to get them. Uh, they, they've come to believe that because of their complaining, because of their hardness of heart, that God is out to squash them. And so when they see the sight on Mount Sinai and they see the smoke and the, the, the incredible display there, they think, bad, bad news up there, terror up there, I can't go to God, so Moses, you go on my behalf. There's a very interesting thought experiment which we can run here, which is that 
What do you really think God would speak to you right now? What do you really truly believe in your heart of hearts God would say to you right now? And I've said this many times, I still think this is, this is the case, that I think most people way down deep have this sense that if God speaks to them or if they would hear from God, it would be something along the lines of, I'm disappointed in you, you messed up, uh, there's something in you that I'm unhappy with. And there's just this kind of like dread that we, we still have of coming to God. It, it happens with the Israelites in the Old Testament. It happens many times in the Bible, and I think it's still the case today. I've been preaching at Oakland Street slowly but surely through the book of Matthew, and uh, not quite at the halfway point yet, but, but uh, it's been very, very interesting to me to, to go through this book and to see in ways that I've never seen before these, this one line that gets repeated in the beginning, in the middle, and near the end of the book that I think is like almost a key to unlock Jesus' ministry. The line is given at Jesus' baptism. It's repeated in Matthew 12, and it's given again at the Mount of Transfiguration. And that line is, is you are my beloved son, or this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the one hand, I think there's a, a, a lot of us that deep down think, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to get spanked and slapped and knocked around. And so our, our recourse is to retreat, psychologically is to retreat. But as, as, we're, as we will see, what God wants to do in our time of prayer for those who are, who are following Jesus is to not come to us with condemnation. There may be conviction, certainly, but it's to come to us first with statements of identity and location. You know, it's, it, it always blows me away uh, when you go through books like Corinthians a group that has a lot of problems, a group that has a lot of issues, Paul still thinks that they're in Christ, um, despite the, the problems that they're, they're having. And this general pattern that we see in the New Testament of first beginning with an identity and a localization of being found in Christ, and then out of that working out our issues is consistently the way that, that this, the epistles uh, manifest our, our remedy. Okay, so my first point was be expectant that God wants to speak to you. My second point is create spaces of solitude and quiet. Okay, so notice what Eli tells Samuel to do in chapter 3. I hope you caught this. He says, quote, go lie down. See that? Go lie down. He says, like, just relax. Get in your bed, lie down, and be at peace. Eli tells Samuel to be at rest. The overwhelming pattern of scripture is that God loves to speak to you when you are at rest. Away from the hustle and bustle. This is repeated time and time and time again. Uh, There's a very famous verse that I think all of us know, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. The pattern that we see of the greats in scripture is that it's often some sort of wilderness or place of quiet that the revelation of God comes. Ezekiel is by the river Kabar. Moses is out in the, in the wilderness uh, when God speaks to him in the burning bush. Abraham is at the oaks of Mamre. Time and time again, you just do a study of this and you look at when does God actually speak to people. It is not... When they're running around frantic, it is when they are at rest, when they are in a place of, of often solitude and, and quiet. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, once said, quote, The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. <laughs> kind of an interesting thought. The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Over the summer... Uh, we had a, a set of sessions that we did here on the love of God, and uh, it was a it was a, a really great set of sessions for for me. And 
one of the, the homework assignments that we had after, I think it was the third session, was I gave some, some questions, and the homework assignment was to go out into the woods and pray for four hours straight, just be with God for four hours straight. And it was an amazing experience. You kind of like, you think, okay, what am I going to do for four hours all by myself uh, out in, we went to Middlesex Fells. Uh, what, what's going to happen there? But it is amazing how in these totally quiet spaces where all you can hear is the rustle of the leaves is is God speaking to you. And in some ways, making an appointment, making a dedicated appointment is a much more effective way. So uh, we've all had experiences where you see somebody and you're like, hey, yeah, we should meet up sometime. And like nothing happens, right? Because let's meet up sometime is, is a pretty vague statement. Unless you say, let's meet at such and such a place at such and such a time, it's probably not going to happen. It's the same way with engaging with God, that unless we make an appointment with God and say, at such and such a place, at such and such a time, let's meet. Otherwise, uh, life is busy and things will, will sail by. In the kingdom of noise that we live in, being in an unrushed, unhurried space is one of the best places for you and God to connect, just like Samuel was quietly lying down in his bed. A lot of us know the story of Samuel, of uh, Elijah, who, you know, he has that, that famous contest with the, the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and then he goes away to Mount Sinai, and when he's at Mount Sinai, of course, God speaks to him in a whisper. And I think one of the main reasons why God speaks in a whisper is because if, if you speak in a whisper, you got to be really close to that person. You got to be, you got to be leaning into that person. You got to be physically near, physically proximate to that person. This is what God wants. God wants closeness. He wants a space to just be still, to be quiet, to experience God. And a lot of times when I hear people say, like, oh, I gotta know God's will. I wanna know God's will. Uh, I gotta know who I gotta marry. I gotta know what job I gotta have. I gotta know, I wanna know this, I wanna know that. That I, I worry a little bit because kind of knowing God's will can almost be a substitute for knowing God. It can be like, I gotta get this formula to like get this answer. But in reality, what does God want? He wants proximity. He wants a closeness of relationship. Okay, my third point is give place to a diversity of God's expressions. Give place to a diversity of God's expressions. One of the great discoveries of the modern age is a in, in the world of archaeology is a stone called the Rosetta Stone. A lot of you know about it. It's actually the single most visited object in the whole of the British Museum. And the reason why the Rosetta Stone is so important is that for many, many centuries, nobody could read Egyptian hieroglyphics. So you see all these etchings on the rocks and you see these these funny patterns here and there and people just like, what is this? We don't know how to read it. And... The stone was discovered in 1799. It was a, a decree of an Egyptian king. The stone was, was created in 196 BC. And the whole beauty of this stone is that the same decree is written three different times. Two of the times it's written in an Egyptian language, but the third time it's written in Greek. And so the world knew Greek. And so everybody said, well, wait a minute. If we know Greek, we can decode that third line. And then because we know Greek, we can then now figure out what the upper lines mean with the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And so all of a sudden, this one little stone now then gave the ability to interpret all of these different like uh, caves and writings inside of pyramids and all these things that before was, was previously obscure. So as it turns out, in the Christian life, we have something very, very close to the Rosetta Stone. Uh, this is an analogy that I got from, from Mark Batterson, who, who says something to the effect that like the Bible is basically our Rosetta Stone, 
to decode all the forms of communication that God gives. Okay, so as it turns out, God speaks in lots and lots of ways, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. There's lots and lots of ways that God speaks, but we need a decoder. We need some kind of scheme to unlock all of these different forms of communication, and that happens to be the Rosetta Stone of the Word of God. And we really, really need this Rosetta Stone. We need it bad because we can be fooled very easily. I grew up in charismatic circles. Uh, I spent most of my my uh, growing up years in various charismatic churches. And uh, very often somebody would come up to you and say, God told me X, whatever X is. And it's kind of the ultimate trump card, the, the God told me card, right? And, well, hey, if God told you that, what are you going to say to that, right? What, what in the world do you say to God told me such and such. And wow, we have some, some stories to tell of some really bad decisions and outcomes that came from the, the God told me card. And, and I think maybe a little bit of a caution comes from even just thinking about, about Peter. So Peter in Matthew 16, in one, in one sentence, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. And then, probably less than a minute later, he's speaking on behalf of Satan. <laughs> and so you're like, wait a minute, here's a guy who's like the chief of the apostles, the, the preeminent apostle, who one minute is speaking the things of God, and then the next minute is speaking the things of the devil. So if that's the case, that this happens to Peter, how much more so is this true of us, that we, we are vulnerable to this? Time and time again, we are told in scripture things like test all things. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.21. It's repeated in 1 John 4. So many times and ways in which we are told that we need to test all things. So if the Bible is the Rosetta Stone, what are the other forms of communication that we have? What are the other ways in which we can hear God? One very obvious way that we can hear God is through other people, uh, through fellow Christians. We can hear God through our desires. Our desires have are a forum in which God loves to speak. We can hear God through circumstances. We can hear God through dreams. We can hear God through creation. There are many, many ways in which God speaks. You know, even in it's on the dreams one. God speaks through dreams in the Bible through even pagans, right? He does that with Pharaoh. He does that with Pilate's wife. Pilate's wife, as far as we know, wasn't, wasn't a follower of Jesus. And like she's getting like real dreams about like the kinds of things that are, are going to be happening. But all of these things, people, our desires, circumstances, dreams, creation, they're all subordinate to scripture, what do I mean by subordinate? I mean subordinate, I mean underneath, controlled by, interpreted by. These are, are the, the key ideas here. I, I, have, I have been in many, many prayer meetings in my life, and the one of the most common prayers, and it's a very good prayer, I think we should keep praying along this way, is from James 1. People pray for wisdom. Right? They say, hey, God, you promised to give wisdom. Let's pray for wisdom according to James 1. In James 3, James elaborates on this wisdom. And he says in James 3.17, But the wisdom that is from above is at first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Okay, so I hope you caught some of those adjectives here. So the wisdom that is from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Okay, willing to yield is, is one that is a very important one. So true wisdom, when God is actually giving us wisdom, it is a submissive, willing to yield wisdom. It is not a manipulative, God told me to tell you this type of, type message, which again, I have heard way too many times in my life uh, that we have to be very careful about. 
more often more often than not the wisdom of god is is ratified through the people around us in ephesians 3:10 it says the manifold wisdom of god might be known by and you know what the rest is by the church so the wisdom of god is known by the church and Proverbs 11.9, it says, The wisdom of the righteous can save you. The wisdom of the righteous can save you. Uh, I, I, I deal a lot with businesses and startup businesses in, in my world, and wow, the number of times that people have failed to heed wisdom and have lost a lot of credibility and money is too many to count. Proverbs 15.22, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but for many advisors they succeed. Okay, so if we think about it for a minute, let's let's think that let's kind of run with this analogy and say that there's these different languages that are out there. There's the language of desires. There's the language of God speaking through people. There's the language of speaking through circumstance. There's the language of speaking through uh, creation. There's all these different languages here. Again, the Bible is our Rosetta Stone that's helping us interpret these other language other languages, and so. By, by inference, then, the better you know the Bible, the more you can understand these other forms of communication. And each of them, in their own right, is a language that requires experience to, to understand and, and really appreciate and, and know. Did you catch here what happened with, with Samuel in verse 7? It says, Samuel did not, net, did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. So it basically says that Samuel is is kind of a novice at understanding the language of God. He's still learning this, and because he's still learning it, he doesn't quite know if it's God or Eli or himself or who knows what there. As it turns out, God actually has all these different channels that he's speaking through. Okay, so the very first line of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1, says, God, who at various times... And in various ways spoke in time past. Okay, so let's let's think about that. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past. So we talked about God spoke from a burning bush, right? That's a one way of speaking. God speaks with visions. Think about Daniel and Ezekiel. God speaks through dreams. God speaks through a donkey. That's one of the ways, the various ways that God speaks in time past. God speaks through a river of blood to Pharaoh. God speaks through a star through a group of, to a group of magi. God speaks to uh, the, the Babylonian king with some handwriting on the wall that says, Mene, Mene, Tekulu, Parson. God speaks through upholstery by tearing the veil of the curtain of the temple and, and when Jesus died. Those are some pretty diverse ways of speaking, isn't it? Right? Animals, upholstery, Natural signs, dreams, words. I mean, there's all different kinds of communication channels that are flowing in the world that we're, we're living in. Now, I suspect that God has been speaking a lot to you and me in many ways, and yet you have missed it. We have missed it. Listen to Job 33, verse 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. Interesting. Job 33, 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. Okay, so so as I said, Samuel here in, in verse 7 is like, I don't know who's talking here. Is it Eli? Is it me? Is it, well, he, he didn't even, I don't think he thought it was God. And just like learning a new language is really hard, it is hard sometimes to discern the the ways in which God speaks. It takes a lot of work. And in the, in the settings that, that I grew up in, they would, um, we, could, we could tell who, who was raised in a Malayalam-speaking background because we have a lot of ways of saying the letter R, and Americans can only say like one or two of them, and they miss most of the ways of saying R. They just can't hear it. Because they don't have practice with it, they haven't heard this this word. There's a there's a word param, which is a word that we we use. And like, can you say that word? And if you can't say it, 
ah, see, you're not one of us. Like we, we can tell um, who's, who's part of the, the South Indian group based on the way that the, the letter R is pronounced in different, different words. And it's kind of like that with, with hearing from God's voice. Like you can hear something and you might think it's nothing or you might miss it completely. It takes a lot of hard work to learn a foreign language, doesn't it? One of the things that that Samuel, or sorry, that Eli does very wisely, and I hope you notice this, in verse nine. Verse nine is is gold. Okay, verse nine, Samuel says, or sorry, Eli says, therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Okay, so Eli doesn't presume that God is going to speak again. He says, like, okay, we can't control God's timing. We can't control the frequency of God's speech here. So he says, if he calls you. There's there's two errors here that people fall into. So one error is to say, okay, this has been so abused over the years that we're going to close off our minds to the possibility of God speaking. And then there's another error on the flip side that says that we can conjure up God speaking whenever we want. Okay, those are the those are kind of the poles here of mistakes. The the manner and the frequency of God speaking are beyond our control. So in verse nine, when Eli says, "Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you, you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant heals." That hears. So that nicely captures, I think, the biblical dynamic there, where it's according to God's timing and His pleasure, but He can't speak, and and if he speaks, we are to respond with, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Okay. My fourth point is respond to God's voice with prayer, which brings more of God's voice. Okay, so the instructions that Eli gives to Samuel are, Go lie down. Just, just be relaxed. Be at peace in your bed. If you hear God, then say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, or your servant hears. There would be a great study to be done here. We won't do it in the interest of time to look at how frequently this pattern is running through the whole of the Bible where there's somebody who is in prayer or they're in some kind of quiet solitude. God speaks. They respond with speak God and then they get more revelation. Uh, In the interest of time, I'm only going to just give some references here to, to have you look them up. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament where uh, it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So Daniel's praying. The angel comes to him and he gets more revelation as a result. Ananias and Saul in Acts 9, they're praying. God gives them revelation that leads to action, that leads to more revelation. Cornelius is praying in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. When he's praying, an angel comes to him, gives him more revelation and action. Peter, a few verses later in nine verses 9 and 11, is praying. He gets more revelation. He gets more action. It's a positive feedback loop. Okay, so it it, it takes very, very little exploration in the Bible to figure out that most of the the examples of God speaking is bound up with prayer, with with being alone with God. And the thesis that I'm going to lay out to you is that every single day of your life, every single day of your life could be an adventure of praying. Believing that God is going to answer your prayer and so you have to listen to how he's going to answer it. And it might come in one of those channels that is unexpected to you, right? We don't know we don't know what exactly how it's going to be. It might be through a person. It might be through a sermon. It might be through a book. It might be through a dream. It might be through a desire. It might be through a circumstance. It might, who knows? Who knows what the specific mechanism might be in this? And And so what we ought to be doing is thinking... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray this prayer, God, expectantly, 
and I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen, not just during the time of my prayer, although that's important. I'm going to listen throughout the whole day for how you might be answering this. The answer to many of your prayers, perhaps even most of your prayers, is hearing from God in some way. Um, Some some of you are struggling with uh, marriage issues or child-rearing issues or job issues or who knows what. And man, can't, can't you, it doesn't take a lot of thought to, to imagine how the answer to your problem might be a word from God that gives you the direction that you need to, to embark upon. I think this is a really, really exciting way to think about prayer is where you pray and it's not just you talking to a, a wall and it ending there, but it's you listening in the moment and throughout the day for how that answer might be, be revealed to you. Okay, my final, my fifth and final point is to respond with humility and action. In this chapter, Samuel five times says, here I am. He says, here I am. Okay, so again, fascinating uh, study of how many times we see people answer, here I am. Okay, I'm just going to read you a few verses here. Genesis 22.1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Genesis 46, 2. Then God spoke to Israel, or Jacob, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Isaiah 6, 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Okay, did you hear the repetition there? Here I am. Now, why is here I am so important? Here I am communicates something about presenting yourself as the answer to, or as the response to God's voice. Even to say your servant is listening, servant implies that you're going to do the bidding of the master, right? Your servant is listening. I hope you, you catch the significance of that response. Your servant is listening. Here I am. There is a a sense of a total response that comes from these these people in the Bible that is a presentation of their whole lives. Here I am. Here am I. I'm willing to do whatever this word says. Which also implies that you will hear from God if and only if you have put into action what you have already heard. Okay, this is probably like the most scary part of hearing from God, which is that like we all want to hear from God, right? We all want this word like, God, I want, I want you to speak into my life and wouldn't that be great? Well, guess what? The, the ways in which God speaks to people is bounded by the degree to which they say, here I am. Your servant, your slave is listening. You will only be used as a vessel from God if you put into action the things that you have already heard. I think there's a lot of us here probably who have heard different things along the way and we know we're supposed to do it and we're not doing it. And guess what? God's voice turns off at that point. You know, in, in the beginning of, of, of um, 1 Samuel 3, the passage that we just read, it said the word of the Lord was, was rare, was hardly to be found. Well, why is that? Why was the word of God hardly to be found? Well, guess what? Eli was living like a derelict dad. The leaders weren't doing their job. The people were living in sin. It was just a bad time for Israel's history. And guess what? The word of God was silent. The exciting part is that if we're willing to say, here I am, your servant, your slave is listening, 
then we begin to hear God's voice. I'll tell you a story here from, true story from Bangladesh, a guy named Pintu Hossein. So Bangladesh, some of you know, is a country that's about 90% Muslim. It's very dense. It's a, there's a lot of people who live in a small, small surface area. And this individual, Pintu, was a very devout person. Uh, he was Muslim. He prayed five times a day. He fasted during Ramadan. But Pintu felt discontent. He felt discontent with Islam. He felt discontent with his country. And so Pintu decided to, in high school, start corresponding with people from other countries. Uh, so he started doing that. And then along the way, somebody said, hey, I have somebody you should write to. And he gave him an address, and the address was the Bible Correspondence Course. And Pintu had never read the Bible. He thinks, what is this course? Is this all about those Christian idolaters who worship three gods instead of Allah? But it intrigued him, the thought of writing to this Christian correspondence course, this Bible correspondence course. They would give a free Bible if you finish the course, so he does this. And as he's studying the Bible as a part of this course, his family gets more and more unhappy with Pintu. Uh, they're worried about his views on Islam, so he begins to experience isolation. And along the way, as he's reading through the Bible, he comes to the story of Joseph, and he really identifies with Joseph. He identifies with him as a as a person who uh, who he could who could relate to, because Joseph was rejected by his brothers, like Pintu was being rejected. One day, uh, he he's, he's decides he's finally going to muster up the courage to go and visit a church meeting. And he nervously walks into the, the hall that they're having this meeting. And the preacher gets going. He starts his sermon. And he stops a few minutes in very awkwardly and then rewinds and starts from the beginning, starts to go through the sermon, stops again a few minutes in, awkwardly, starts at the beginning, again goes through, stops again a third time as he's trying to make it through here. And Pintu thinks this man is mentally deranged. He has some kind of problem. And so he decides to leave the hall. So as he's leaving, he goes and he, he opens the door. He's uh, exiting the building. And he's, as he's touching the doorknob, the preacher says that he feels that God wants him to change his topic to instead talk about the life of Joseph. And Pintu's ears naturally perk up. True story, he decides to stay in the, the sermon. And as this man talks about Joseph and his brothers, Pintu increasingly feels like this man is telling his story. As soon as the meeting is over, Pintu goes up to the speaker and says, do you know me? It seems like the sermon was about me. Pastor has no idea who this person is. And and uh, of course, he figures out that God told him uh, and stopped him in his tracks that he was not to go down his prepared route and that he was to instead preach a, a different sermon about the life of Joseph. Finally, uh, he, he, Pintu gets it and he understands that God had intervened in this moment. I hope that story isn't strange or off-putting to you. I've, I've had similar experiences in my own life. I, I, I remember, this is like totally unlike me, but I was in a, in a, at a retreat once. This was many, many years ago. I was still in the evangelical world. And I was, um, this is almost 30 years ago now, and I was, I was in this retreat. And I don't know why, this is totally unlike me, but all I could do was think about the number three. I was like, I don't know why. It was so weird. Like, it's, again, it's not like me, but like I can, I could not do anything but think about the number three. And um, and so in the in the middle of the meeting, I stand up and I say, Hey guys, I know this is really weird, but all I can do is think about the number three. I don't know what to do with this. And again, you know me to know this is not like me, right? Um, this is not this is not my my normal my mo. And all of a sudden, somebody else in the in the group says, "Wait a minute! I had this dream, and the number three kept happening all through this dream." And he says, "I I hit three bumps. I had three cuts. I had three this, three that." And I was like, "Okay, that's interesting." And then the next thing you know, the worship leader melts down and starts bawling um, in the middle of this meeting and starts to confess 
this, this sexual sin that he's involved in um, that was, I won't give the details here, but was bound up with a number three. And the next thing you know, we're, the whole retreat is stopped and we're like stopping and praying and people are crying and I'm like, all this happened because I couldn't get out of my head the number three. Um, and uh, I'm sure it was, it was God working in that. Totally bizarre. I still don't get it. I still don't understand all of the chains that, that hooked up there. But, but that worship leader's night, that life was transformed. And he finally got out in, into, the, into the light, the, the secret sins of his life that were, were waiting there. There are so many stories like this. So, 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 so many stories of, of people who God has used. Uh, this person in Bangladesh who ministered to Pintu. I, I feel like I've got dozens of them here. Uh, I, I remember, I won't tell the story, but if you want to know a great story about someone speaking through architectural construction, I've got an amazing story of somebody speaking through architectural construction that would change many, many people's lives. As it turns out, it is rarely an audible voice. Maybe sometimes it is. I've never heard God speak in that way. There's a, another person who's a fairly conservative Christian. His name is Adrian Rogers, who talks about this and he, he, he mentions how he can he can hear God and somebody says, wait a minute, are you telling me you can hear God speak in an audible voice? And I love his answer. He says, no, it wasn't audible. It was much louder than that. Um, and I think that one line gets it for me about what it's like when you know God's language. You just know it. You just know what it is and it's not audible, but you know it, you perceive it in, in powerful ways. Okay, so now let's try to sum all this up and then I'll conclude. I opened by talking about how prayer is, is often something that we struggle with because it is, it's easy to have it be something that's a duty-based talking, not interacting with the living God, someone who is dynamically wanting to engage with us. And I, I made the, the claim that our prayer life is supposed to be dynamic, first interpreted and governed by the Rosetta Stone of Scripture, but we are to be attentive to our desires, to other people, through circumstance, to creation, to all these these different channels that God speaks in, and each of those are a language in and of themselves. When you begin to reframe your prayer life in this way, prayer really does become an adventure. It becomes an adventure where you go to God seeking to hear him, to hear from the Holy Spirit, uh, to have a life of surprise and supernatural activity as we interact with an omniscient God, a God whose ways are higher than our ways. I want us to participate in the adventure of a dynamic, daily, submissive, interactive prayer where we hear God's voice and to have delight be what drives us to prayer. I truly believe that if we can get to the point where every day we are consistently in fervent, passionate prayer, seeking to hear from God, then that would uh, transform our lives in ways that we, we don't even begin to understand. So join me in pursuing God in this way, and I will close us in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the living God. You are a God who has spoken in diverse ways, in diverse manners to different people all throughout history. And I know you want to engage our hearts today in ways that we can't really even understand. I, I don't pretend to understand how you speak to us through through prayer, through the diverse languages that you, you do have, but I know that you do. I pray that we would not fall into the extreme of of silencing you, nor into the extreme of conjuring you up like a genie, not using you in, in, a, in an unseemly way, not using the God told me card in a manipulative way, but speaking collectively with others as you so often love to do, to speak in, in multiple ways to confirm your word. I pray that we would have a daily prayer life rich with anticipation and excitement that you would use us to minister to many, many people like that first person I, I mentioned who was about to commit suicide, 
like Pintu, like that worship leader living in sin, like the many, many people all around us that are are eager to to, to hear from you through through your saints. I pray that we would be kindled in our hearts to be excited about prayer, to have it be something that we delight in. I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us in fresh ways. In Jesus' name, amen.